0: Tamir.
1: Hi, Allison.
0: Tamir and I are interrupting our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, we, were, we were not going to do an episode on this topic, but we feel because of the moment, we really need to speak to what's happening in Israel and Palestine, um, looking at it through a racial justice lens. And the reason we want to do this, I mean, obviously it's on both of our minds and hearts, but we know that white people all over the world are confronting a moral dilemma. Um, And since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, we've seen Israel's military action killing over 10,000 people, uh, nearly 5,000 of them children. And we also know that Israel and Palestine has been a third rail issue in racial justice politics for a long time. And many of us have been unsure how to respond historically and are currently unsure how to respond. And we know that you as a listener, like, you know probably have a variety of responses and that our listenership responses may, may fall along quite a large spectrum. And we want you to know that we see you and that this episode is hopefully a place for you and all of us to apply the tools that we've gained for racial justice to all of the issues tied up in this conflict.
1: Allison, how are you feeling talking about this topic?
0: My eyes just got really big. Um, I I have been feeling nervous. I definitely have been feeling nervous. I feel I think more positive anticipation now, but yeah, there's it, it definitely strikes up some fear in me and some nerves in me.
1: What's the fear?
0: Mm, gosh. I think I think there's a lot of fear around causing harm. There's a lot of fear around hurting Specifically white, Jewish, American friends, colleagues, you know, loved ones. Um, and there's definitely, yeah. Mm. I think there's a fear to, I mean, not even saying the wrong thing, but I want to use my voice in ways that are helpful, um, in ways that bring people together and continue conversation and spur critical thinking and don't shut folks down. And so this being such a third rail issue, like it doesn't take a lot to shut folks down. And I really, I want to invite folks into the conversation and into the hard bits. And I don't know, I think I'm nervous. I, we won't be able to do that, but I'm hopeful that we can.
1: Thank you for, for sharing that and modeling that vulnerability. I suspect that a lot of our listeners are having similar struggles right now. Um,
0: how are you feeling coming into this combo?
1: Um, I mean, I'm pretty public about my positions on this issue, so I can't say that I feel particularly nervous. Mm Um, I personally feel like the facts of the situation are pretty unambiguous and actually Mm -hmm. charging the issue politically and making it seem nuanced and ambiguous is one of the ways that oppressive systems operate. Yep. And so I see part of our job today is actually cutting through that. And inviting and challenging our listeners um, to really reckon with uh, a rigorous racial justice analysis uh, around this issue, right? And we know you're here because you care about um, oppressed peoples and you want to be in solidarity. And so we've got to challenge ourselves to apply those same principles and that same kind of analysis um, everywhere.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, and it's I'm so glad you said you just named that you're like your feelings are unambiguous on this issue and that it actually isn't as complex as we are often led to believe. Um we've talked about previously that the solutions are complex, like we won't argue with that. Um, but I really I feel like you're lending me some courage because when I look inside myself and I look inside my heart, it's not uh it's not that complicated either. And I'm pretty clear on where I stand. But speaking that publicly it feels scary, but I'm glad to be doing it with you.
1: Thank you, friend. Yeah.
0: So before we get into kind of a basic history to support this discussion, I think we want to name that, you know, for this episode, we're focusing primarily on how white people are responding in this moment and white American folks, because that's where we're located and the ways that we are taking action or struggling to take action We're struggling to find moral clarity, struggling to speak up. Um, We're really focusing on how white people are meeting this moment, white folks who care about racial justice, right?
1: Yeah. And I wonder if in the spirit of this, it might help us to just talk a little bit about our positionality on this issue. And I can start. So I think most of you know this. I'm an Israeli born Jew. I am Israeli on my dad's side, American on my mom's side, and descended from migrants and refugees on both sides of my family from Eastern Europe. Um, And so I owe the fact of my existence to the existence of the state of Israel. And I think that that has come at an unacceptable human price. Mm. Um, And so I am deeply concerned with um, the moral sacrifices that my people are making in the name of physical safety. Mm. Yeah, I should also say I'm also saying this from the comfort and safety of a home in the northeast of the United States, where there may be anti-Semitism, but I'm not likely to get hit with a missile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not likely to get attacked by a mob, um, and we can talk about the realities of anti-Semitism. And I can share we didn't script this, but I can share some of um, my own lived experience with anti-Semitism as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can acknowledge that um, that is not as immediate a threat to me in this moment. But as a Jew, that's always a threat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My positionality is pretty different, right? I am a yeah white kind of Protestant, born and raised human in the U.S. Um, I don't have any personal ties to the region of Israel or Palestine. Um, I have lots of colleagues, coworkers, loved ones who are white Jewish American folks. Um, and I, yeah, I care deeply about human suffering and the oppression of all folks around the world. So it matters to me because I believe there are folks living under oppression and should not be. And, um, I feel, yeah, just in alignment with my morals and my integrity, uh, a need to take action and to, to speak up.
1: Awesome. Should we, should we move on to the history?
0: Yeah, let's get into that basic history because there's there's some history.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think it's worth yeah naming before we get into the present.
1: Yeah, so I off? mean, there, yeah, so there's been like a million books and articles written about this. Some of them conflict, but I think there's a general fact based narrative, and I'm going to try to editorialize as little as possible. So, um, the state of Israel was created by the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement was a group of European Jews and Jews of European descent right? So same as as my racial ethnic identity, um, who wanted to build a homeland in um, their ancestral land of Israel. Um, They leveraged the power of um, the British colonizers who controlled what was then Palestine. And that um, started with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, and then uh, three decades later with the UN Partition Plan in 1947, Um, In the decades that were between those, there was both peaceful coexistence and armed clashes um, and just straight up slaughter right, uh, in the region over people who were fighting for dominance in the land. Um, The UN Partition Plan of 1947 resulted in a war in 1948, and through that war, um, 800,000 of—I believe it was 1.4 million Palestinians— Um, were displaced from their homes. Not only were they displaced from their homes during the war, they were barred from returning after the war. And if you hear uh, right of return, as a phrase in this conversation, that's part of it.
0: right? And one thing that I know we know is that between the Balfour Declaration in 1917 and the UN Partition Plan in 1947, that roughly half of Palestine came to be allocated to Israel. So it was not just kind of like small group clashes around the land. Like there was Mm -hmm. legal sanctioning of land changing hands there.
1: Yeah. And geopolitically, Palestine basically came to cease to exist as an entity because the land that was left was taken over by other neighboring nations. Yep. Um, So any, any prospect of Palestinian political self-determination in the form of a state was thwarted in 1948 Um, through successive wars. Israel went on to take more territory um, and now controls, I want to say, 85% of the land formerly known as Palestine. Um, Today, more than 2 million Palestinians live in Gaza, which is a strip of land that's only 25 miles wide. Um, They've been under blockade for 17 years, uh, and most of them can't leave for any reason. Um, And Gaza is regularly referred to as an open-air prison. Uh, Another 1.6 million Palestinians live in Israel as citizens, and another 3 million live in the West Bank. just talk briefly about actually, I'm going to do this in a different order. Today, the Israeli government, its military, and extremist settlers continue to annex land in the occupied territories. So, the Israeli military, and there's video of this, will actually accompany and protect armed extremist settlers, often ultra Orthodox, as they force Palestinians out of their homes and villages. And I am not being dramatic. They'll literally break into people's houses, throw their shit on the street and say, you don't live here anymore. Or they'll take over half the house and live in half of somebody else's house until they get backing to take over the other half. Mm-hmm. And these are illegal under international law. And eventually they become legalized by the state of Israel and become part of the state of Israel. Um, and for many political actors in the region, this is a deliberate strategy. They won't refer to it as Palestine. They call it Judea, which is a, a biblical name for the land. But... Um, and there are officials in the current government, right, in the ruling coalition, still even under the emergency government during this conflict, who actively support this agenda, and they've made no secret of it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, go
0: ahead. Oh no! I mean, it just—it's—I don't know. It's just unthinkable. Like that—that that hits me, right? Like thinking about having my yeah. home broken into and taken over by an extremist with the backing of a government, right? Like it's just kind of unthinkable and yet it's happening and has been happening for a long time here.
1: And until the last month, I think most Americans had no idea. And I wonder how many Americans know this now, right? Mm -hmm. Because in any other country on earth, this would just be widely panned as a war crime. Mm -hmm. But because it involves Israel and Palestine, there's this sort of interrupter circuit in our brains that says, wait, there must be something else going on. There's actually, we're
0: going to get into that in a little bit too, like kind yeah. of that conditioning as white folks.
1: Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to say, I want to give a little bit of background on Hamas. I'm not an expert on Hamas, um, but just some basic facts. So Hamas is the group that led the October 7th attack on Israel and continues to engage with the Israeli military in Gaza. They were created in 1987. Um, in 2006, they were voted in as the governing authority of the West Bank. There was a clash with a secularist group called Fatah at the time, and um, Hamas won that. And there hasn't been an election in Gaza since. Um, And half of the population of Gaza—
0: So we're talking almost 20 years.
1: Yeah. 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 And by the way, half of the population of Gaza is children. So the overwhelming majority of Palestinians, if you include the people who were younger than voting age then— never voted for this government. And in fact, today, according to a recent poll by the Washington Institute, 70% of Palestinians would prefer that the Palestinian Authority, which governs the West Bank on the other side of Israel, would come in and take over, mm. right? So this is this is a quasi-government with an extreme militant wing without popular support and with international backing. Yeah. Um, so one bit of legitimate nuance in this is that there is a, an actual armed enemy on the other side with foreign support mm. and... There is still a vast asymmetry in terms of military capability and international support in this conflict, and we'll talk about that more when we talk about power analysis. So, those are just some basic facts. Um, I don't know if anybody if anybody wants to dispute those, feel free. But I find them pretty hard to refute in any credible way. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, let's get into why we want to talk about this topic here, and I I kind of alluded to just based on my personal stance of like. we believe that all human lives have value. I know you share that belief as well. And because of that, we are committed to being in solidarity with folks who are oppressed, folks whose value is not being seen, honored, respected, et cetera. Um, So we can't sit this issue out if if that's what we say we believe. And because you and I and and many other folks are committed to racial justice, we've got to be able to apply a racial justice lens consistently in a political context, not just kind of when we want to, or, or when we feel even like educated enough to do so, right? Like there is a lot of history here. And I think even if you don't know the ins and outs and the nuance of that history, you still can apply a racial justice lens and look at it through that. And we know that race figures directly into this conflict. This israeli Palestinian conflict and, The dynamics in this conflict have parallels to dynamics of oppression here in the U.S. And we'll get into that in just a little bit as well. Samir, do you want to talk about kind of the American support, like kind of the the national federal level support?
1: Yes. So Israel has benefited from American political support, consistent American political support for decades. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that if it weren't for the support of the United States financial, military, and political, the landscape would look very different today than it did than it does,
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean the u s is an empire the, we are living under an imperialist power, and our government has taken and continues to take and oppress other nations around the globe for our benefit for our financial political benefit so yeah, I mean what what our government is doing in Israel in terms of supporting uh, financially, militaristically, and kind of, you know, verbally, um, in in some ways is not so different from what we're doing in many yep. other countries, past and present.
1: Yeah. And if we look at the structure and purpose of U.S. support for Israel, there are some realities that we can't escape regardless of, you know, like what we believe about Israel. One mm-hmm. is that U.S. military aid comes in the form of money that goes to Israel in order to purchase weapons and technology from American producers, Mm, which is the way that a lot of USAID operates. And it is a way of, of, it actually creates a perverse incentive, right? For this kind of behavior. It's Um, a kickback,
0: really? Like, yeah.
1: Number two, we rely on Israeli military intelligence and Israeli military technology, right? Israel is one of the leading producers of technological innovation in the world, right? So we rely on Israel as an intelligence partner in the region. And part of that, which we cannot escape, is the fact that it is a Jewish and perhaps more importantly, non-Muslim country, right, by constitution. So they are they are an island in a sea of what many in our country would consider enemies. I do not. I think that's okay. racist. But mm-hmm. it is a common, like, you hear people like Lindsey Graham saying, oh, we're in a religious war. This is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I'm at it, we might as well talk about the um, the support of American evangelicals for the state of israel which comes from an anti-semitic place yeah. this is not solidarity friends this no. is they think that um if if israel wins that the rapture will come and some of these folks believe that when the rapture comes two-thirds of my people are going to die and the other third are going to see the light and believe in jesus this is not solidarity no <laughs> this is something else entirely um So we've got to look at all of that when we look at why our alignments in this conflict are the way that they are.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And we also want to uplift, and Tamir, I know you want to speak to this specifically, like the many Jewish people right now who are hurting and who are scared. And maybe some of you are here and and here listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. I've already said this, but anti-Semitism is real. I'm carrying generational trauma from it. My entire family is. Every Jew I know carries generational trauma from the Holocaust and from millennia of persecution. And part of my experience of the Jewish consciousness is that we never really belong almost anywhere and our safety anywhere is precarious and conditional. Yep. Part of the condition for that is our proximity and our complicity in dominant group dominion, right? Mm proximity to whiteness most Americans probably don't even realize there are non-European Jews mm-hmm. and even the state of Israel was made for European Jews. Yeah. Right. But let me let me digress and stay with stay with this, right? So, I know a lot of folks who are super triggered by this right now because it brings up I mean, I have friends who grew up in Eastern Europe where they dealt with ex- like overt above ground violence against Jews. I have a friend from uh Uzbekistan and, you know, his Group of friends used to fight like the his the, the Arab group in the same schoolyard. Mm. Right. And like that formed his understanding of a relationship between these groups. And so to him, everything I think is naive, right? Mm. I don't agree with that, but I can understand and respect his lived experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and what I'm seeing happening, like your pain is valid, your fear is valid. And Jews are historically oppressed people. That is that is an inescapable fact and for many people the analysis stops there mm. right that we actually can't see past it in order to see the full hierarchy of human value that is at play in this conflict in which Jews are not at the top of that hierarchy and Palestinians are even lower mm-hmm. right and um some of my friends it feels like they're living in an alternate universe Yeah. Where it's like Palestinians might as well not even exist in this discourse unless they're Hamas military wing. Yep. And that is a failure of rigor.
0: It's a failure of rigor. It's a reflection of conditioning, as you said, right? And some of that through lived experience and some of that through what we are implicitly and explicitly taught about the other. Um, Right. Muslim folks, Arab folks have been othered (laughs) again and again, Um, which is so wild. Like when I think of it through that lens, like Jewish folks and Muslim folks have so much in common (laughs) Mm -hmm. in terms of being historically oppressed and othered. And like, I think I have felt some frustration when Jewish folks are not able to see those parallels.
1: Yeah. I mean, so often when I meet Palestinians here in the U.S., I'm like, thank God we're here and we can be friends, mm. right? And it's like, we're just people, which is how it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The other thing I want to I say around Judaism, there's actually a couple of things. So one is like the way I was raised, I was raised modern Orthodox Jewish until I was 14. And then I made the choice to walk away from religion, right? I can't walk away from my Jewishness, even if I wanted to, but I walked away from the, the organized faith part of it. I was taught that Judaism is an ethical framework for living. There's a rabbi, I don't know if it was the rabbi Akiva or somebody else, who said that the meaning of the Torah was to love others as yourself and the rest is window dressing. Mm. Right? This is a very common moral stance for many American Jews. There is nothing moral about what the state of Israel is doing right now. I've said in other places that faced with the threat of physical extinction, we've chosen moral extinction. Yeah. Right? How can we say that the, the, the version of Judaism put forth by the theocratic state of Israel is Jewish in its morality. It simply isn't. In fact, the ruling coalition made a deal with the devil so that it could take power, Mm. right? So we have to reckon with that because this is a mass moral injury in the making, right? We're going to pass trauma onto our children from what we're doing here. And most of us don't have to serve in the army. Part of the reason my dad came here was so that I wouldn't have to be in the West Bank supporting those assholes who are committing crimes against humanity in my name, right? Um, I also want to touch on this because I don't think we put it in the notes, this idea that if you if you are anti-Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. And I just want to say anti-Zionism doesn't mean that all Jews in Israel should be driven into the sea. Mm-hmm. It means that we don't have the right to dispossess an entire population of people in order to establish a state that nominally keeps us safe, but actually has failed to do so for seven years. Right? Yeah. Um, that's not anti-Semitic. That is pro-Jewish. Mm, mm. And there are a wide range of Jews from all denominations who believe that what Israel is doing is wrong. So if people throw that at you, it's just bullshit. Mm. It's an uncritical position. It's a reflexive position that's being used. And the other thing is we're seeing people misapply racial justice analysis Mm. in order to shield themselves from the rigor they need to be applying in this situation, right? People saying, well, Jews are indigenous to the land of Israel, Mm that still doesn't justify displacing hundreds of thousands of people. No.
0: That's, that's a hard one for me to, to see and here. Yeah. Cause I'm with you. I'm like, that, that doesn't, it <laughs> doesn't justify what the action that's being taken. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of connections between what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Israel, Palestine in racial justice work in the U S like you and I Maybe. sat down and thought about a number of them, like, First one is root causes and specifically an unwillingness to look at the historical origins of inequities between groups of people and also the unwillingness to look at how those origins continue to shape our societies today. We see that both here in the U.S. We see that in Israel and Palestine. Like it makes me think about like the way in which individuals from marginalized groups um, are blamed for their marginalization in various ways without looking at the institutions, the systems that created the circumstances in which those individuals are living and taking action. Right. right. Like the kind of bootstrapping, you know, theory <laughs> that we hear in the U S like, well, you should be able to just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and dah, 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 be mm-hmm. successful. Uh, and without looking at, who that is possible for and who it isn't possible for, based on what has happened historically, policies, practices, cultural beliefs, etc., that have made it damn near impossible for some folks to create their own success here. There's also a piece about just like the hierarchy of human value uh, that there's a parallel, is that, you know, in the Middle East, the only conclusion that an impartial observer could draw based on what is happening right now in Gaza is that Palestinian lives are worth less than Israeli lives. You could even assign a ratio to that based on the number of the dead, right? Mm. In this kind of hierarchy of human value, deaths of Israelis are treated as tragic, as unacceptable, horrific, while deaths of Palestinians are treated as necessary, maybe an unfortunate casualty of the conflict but ultimately necessary. Um, and that's a huge, I mean, <laughs> huge inequity of hierarchy. And, you know, a lot of times our default conditioning as white people is to side with the group that has greater proximity to whiteness, to side with the group that seems most like us um, based on whatever, you know, similarities we see. And also the group that we haven't been conditioned to believe as less than, as lower Mm -hmm. on this hierarchy of human value.
1: Yeah. And the piece around um, siding with the group with greater proximity to whiteness is so insidious, right? Because like Ashkenazi Jews, Jews of European descent, like me, are one branch of the global Jewish diaspora. There are Middle Eastern and North African Jews who were expelled from their countries after the state of Israel was created in 1948. Many of them ended up in Israel. I said this before, but the state of Israel was not created for Middle Eastern or North African Jews. There are also Mizrahi Jews who lived in Palestine before the state of Israel was created. Um, and But when we think about Jews, we think about people who look like me, right? Mm-hmm. And I can mm-hmm. imagine like the caricatures in my head, you know, the guy with the hook nose and all of that, right? That's only a subset of the the Jewish population. But because that's the group that we associate with Jewishness and we associate that group with whiteness, I benefit from conditional whiteness. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget a friend of mine in college was someone's like, "You're not really white because you're Jewish, right?" I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right? Depends and who's
0: I'm, asking. Depends who's offering. Yeah, benefits or consequences for that. Like, and
1: and on what terms? I'm only on white terms. for as long as my whiteness benefits um, the the systems of oppression that function in the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as, yeah, as soon as you're your identity becomes inconvenient or mm-hmm. unacceptable in some ways. Yeah, you will be othered as we've right. seen historically through yeah, for yeah. Jewish and, folks.
1: And I think one place where there is nuance that needs to be recognized in this conflict is that we are talking about a conflict between two oppressed peoples who just have different levels of backing and are assigned different levels of value, human value yeah. in our hierarchy, right? Yeah. Part of the reason the state of Israel exists is that no country in the whole freaking world would take us when Hitler tried to get rid of us. the The Prime Minister of Australia literally said, "We don't have a Jewish problem, and we're not about to import one." Mm-hmm. Right. So, part of yeah. international support for the creation of the state of Israel was moral laundering for our own anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and that continues to be part of the reason that many of these nations support Israel today.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I never want to get into, like, the oppression Olympics, right? Mm -hmm. I never want to get into, like, because really, first of all, that's, like, pitting oppressed groups against each other, which, like, again, doesn't serve those groups. Mm -hmm. And I think there's nuance around who is being oppressed at what time and when, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Jews have been oppressed throughout history in in moments that were very acute, right? The Holocaust, chronic Mm -hmm. oppression, like, acute Mm -hmm. in that moment. and. The Palestinians are having that moment now. It goes. It goes back to the. I feel like Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. You know, like yes, absolutely, All Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter in that specific moment because of the actions that were happening in that moment. We need to attend to them, right?
1: Yeah, I think I might put that slightly differently in that, like, we say All Lives Matter that includes Black Lives, but it needs to be said. It shouldn't need to be said, but it does need to be said that Black Lives Matter, and that's why. That's why that mantra became what it was. Exactly, right? and yeah. like we don't even talk about Palestinian lives in the mainstream American discourse. Maybe yeah. we talk about them right now when they're being bombed. We didn't talk about them worth a damn three weeks ago in September when I think six new illegal settlements settlements were um, yeah. legalized in the west uh, in the West Bank. And by the way, the U.S. government actually did come out against those. I mean, we're
0: kind of getting into it, but another kind of connection or similarity between what's happening in the Middle East and racial justice work here, and well, not racial justice work, but racial inequity here is Mm -hmm. the dehumanization and presumptions of guilt um, against a group who's being oppressed, right? So we've seen and heard all kinds of racist dehumanizing tropes around Palestinian folks and also against people of color here in the U.S. And, And they're pretty similar tropes, right? Uh, calling them animals, using images of darkness, um, jungle kind of imagery, again, like all of that animalizing, dehumanizing folks of color. Um, And we see it currently from high-ranking Israeli officials using those same kind of tropes um, in talking about Palestinian
1: folks. We see it from Israeli officials and we see it from American politicians. We see it from presidential candidates, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a really spectacular just ugh, I was <laughs> going to say something. Possibly spectacularly awful. <laughs> just ugh. Um, we've seen it. There was just a um a moment captured on social media yesterday in the Florida state legislature where um a legislator introduced a motion for cease to ceasefire resolution in the state legislature. I think it got one vote, and the person who introduced it, who was a black woman, was like weeping while in pleading with her colleagues to support this bill. She's like, there are 10,000 dead Palestinians. How many more do there have to be before we care? And one of the legislators said, all of them. Wow. Right? So this is like mainstream American politics. And these same assholes who say this about Palestinians say it about Black people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. say it about queer people, yeah. say it about immigrants. Right. Are are enforcing anti-abortion laws around the country. Mm-hmm. Right. And these folks are like the palatable alternative to Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hardly palatable. <laughs> but yeah, for many people, palatable.
1: Yeah. Which is also why I say, like, if you believe that black lives matter and you're okay with what's happening in Palestine right now, I want to challenge you to evaluate how much you think black lives really matter. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, another piece of this dehumanization presumptions of guilt against oppressed people that we see in both places is blaming Palestinians for their own oppression, uh, and being more concerned with how they resist than with the oppressive conditions that they live in. This is a direct parallel to anti-Black racism in the U.S. When we see protests, folks marching in the streets, um, You know, there's, there's so much concern about property damage. There's so much concern about uh, basically just making a fuss um, versus the concern about whatever the thing is that's being protested, the murder of another black human on, you know, by police in the U S yeah. The focus is just clearly not, not in the place that matters, not in the root cause, cause
1: place. That's right. That's right. And let's be clear. Maybe you were about to say this, like, we don't, we don't support the October 7th attack. I mean, I condemn any action that kills civilians, right? Yeah. 100%. Um, identify as a pacifist. I don't support war, right? Soldiers are people too. Um, and we don't condone punishing millions of people for the actions of a few, especially when those people are living under state-sponsored oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And can we talk for a second about from the river to the sea? Yeah. So there are, there are two chants. Um, Rashida Taleb just got censured by the U.S. House of Representatives for, I think she used the phrase from the river to the sea. And the full slogan is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um, and that phrase scares a lot of Jews. It makes me uneasy too, frankly, um, because it, it, many people take it as meaning we're going to drive the Jews into the sea, right? I understand where that discomfort comes from right? Or even free Palestine, because the, the 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 implication is what happens to the Jews living in Israel, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's not an easy question, right? Like if we were to try to create a single state solution, right? The chances of armed factions ruining it for everybody are actually quite high, mm-hmm. um, absent any sort of meaningful international intervention or support. And it's one thing to be uneasy about the slogan or not repeat it, and it's another thing to then not support the cause of Palestinian life because you don't like the slogan. Yep. They're not your enemies, yeah. right? Palestinians are very clear that they just want freedom. If you ask kids what they'll do when Palestine is free, they say, I'm going to go to the beach because they can't. Yeah, They live next to the beach and there's so many checkpoints, they can't go swimming, right? Yeah. They don't want to kill me. They want to go swimming.
0: Do you want to talk about or speak to the privilege and erasure of like who gets heard, who gets to express themselves versus folks who don't?
1: The way that supporters of Zionism have confronted me and other people around this issue are of a tone and a strain that a Black person in this country can never use without repercussions. That is an artifact of privilege, right? That we grant folks. A certain special dispensation to be especially inappropriate in the ways that they talk about this. Um most of what the mainstream media, we've already talked about this. What most of what the mainstream media has been covering is the Israeli perspective that is starting to shift. Um, and that's really important. And part of the reason it's shifting because is because of social media and the ability of Palestinians on the ground to broadcast their own predicament and the mm-hmm. footage that's coming out of Palestine is is horrifying. Horrific. And you can't you can't watch that and think that what's happening here is okay or, or correct. Right. Um, you know, there are people who are journaling and to me, it's like listening. It's like watching the diary of Anne Frank in real time. Mm. Um, and a lot of my Muslim friends who are posting about this issue are people who are just generally like, don't have white skin. They're being told they don't know what they're talking about. They're being called terrorists Um, And that is a direct tie to anti, that's anti-Arab racism, right? It's the same shit that we've been dealing with since before 9-11, but especially since 9-11. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely tremendous privilege and tremendous erasure happening around who gets to express themselves, who gets to, you know, share their perspective, whose perspectives are valued by the media and just interpersonally. And that's Mm -hmm. the similarity we see. Yeah. Here and there. Yeah. Let it's, let's get into the, another similarity we see is the conflation of criticism of dominant group supremacy as hatred for that group. So this criticism of Zionism or criticism of the Israeli government being labeled anti-Semitic. What's your take on that?
1: Well, it's bullshit. <laughs> um, and we have to, we have to understand that the state of Israel is not the Jewish people.
0: Yes. hundred percent. hundred percent. And.
1: and if we believe that every racial and ethnic group in the world has a right to political self-determination in the form of a viable state, one, that applies to Palestinians. Mm. It applies to Native Americans. It applies to the Kurds. It applies to the Roma, right? We're not willing to let that happen in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So that logic is actually not consistent with the international consensus. There are Jews all over the world who don't identify as Israeli and the Israeli state does not get to define who is Jewish.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The parallel there I see is in the U S you know, there's criticism of um, like racial justice teaching uh, as being anti-white or critical race theory being criticized as being Mm -hmm. anti-white which again, it's we would say it is not. <laughs> it is not. I'm not uh I've done a lot of learning about racial justice and CRT and I have not been made to feel bad about being a white person. I may have feelings mm-hmm. that come up learning the history, but that's not the point of that teaching. And that's right. definitely, yeah, <laughs> not yeah. been my experience.
1: <laughs> I've had lots of bad feelings about white about my whiteness and the impact that it has on other people, but that's not the fault of the material, right? The material is just telling the truth. Yeah. And like part of the parallel between those two things is that it is a shallow fallacious criticism that is used to deflect moral responsibility. Right. Like when Ron DeSantis says, I don't want white kids in my state schools to feel bad. So I'm banning anything involving like critical racial content. It's actually say like, I want to morally blind the children of the state from the sins that they've inherited Mm -hmm. and are inheriting a responsibility to address.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many parallels. I'm like continuing to look at our notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's so many. I mean, the corporate and organizational complicity, um, you already referred to one of the perverse incentives to uphold the status quo. and Yeah. I mean, there's so many of us who believe what's happening in Israel and Palestine is wrong than actually can say so out loud. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of backlash. There's a lot of, you know, uh, real consequences for speaking that out loud. People Mm -hmm. getting fired, people getting reprimanded by their jobs. Um, There's a, a really interesting Instagram account called Dear White Staffers. That has tons and tons of posts from staff on Capitol Hill talking about how their representatives know what is happening is wrong. They're receiving thousands of phone calls a day, but won't speak out, won't challenge, you know, the Biden administration and call for a ceasefire.
1: And they won't challenge their own constituents who've bought, you know, the, the Israeli government propaganda hook, line, and sinker. And here's mm-hmm. here's the thing that really galls me. And let's this should really drive home the connection between anti-Palestinian racism and anti-Black racism here in the U.S. I saw uh, a list and a picture of the Congress people who support Cori Bush's ceasefire resolution. As far as I can tell, not one of them is white. Yep. The overwhelming majority of Congress is white. Not a single white congressman has the moral fortitude to call for a ceasefire. You're not yeah. even recommending a solution. You're just saying, stop bombing kids. Yeah. So their political yeah. expediency is more important then Palestinian lives, that's racism, pure mm-hmm. and simple, institutional racism. Yeah.
0: Y- yeah, it's wild. I also have seen that picture. And i it reminds me that generally, uh, yeah, if I'm siding with a <laughs> a large group of older white people, and I love older white people, but <laughs> if, if it's that versus a group of folks who tend to be more progressive or often people of color, like, I got to look at who I'm siding with and who's- yep who I'm listening to, whose positions I'm, you know, (laughs) taking as valid. Um, I mean, there's so much to around like this corporate organizational complicity in the U S like just within the criminal legal system, we have police unions, we have private prisons, we have companies that supply those private prisons. We have companies that make police equipment and companies like, you know, the NFL, that benefit from association with the police and the military, like there's so much, I don't know, convolution. I don't even know what to, yeah. what to call
1: that. Um, it makes me think of, I'm going to get the phrase wrong, but Dr. King's three evils, I think it was like racism, poverty, and militarism. Am I remembering yes. that right?
0: Yeah, I um, think
1: so. So like the militarism piece here is important because it's actually entwined in our political economy, right? Like militarism aligns with patriotism and in the United States on the right, that means whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I mean, we were talking before about knocking people for how they resist. Remember what happened to Colin Kaepernick?
0: Yep. Still not playing.
1: <laughs> Still not playing. Um, mm-hmm. so like there are connections here and these folks, like they have a brand identity investment in this oppressive system and in defending it as just,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: In yeah. actually really potent means of silencing and punishing anybody who shares the opposite position. Yeah.
0: There's so much guess <laughs> we talk about it, I'm just like, oh my God. Like it's, this is why, I don't know. This is one of the many reasons why this is so hard to talk about, like the heaviness and mm-hmm. the parallels between what's happening
1: mm-hmm.
0: there and here and continues to happen there and here.
1: It's funny you say that for me, the parallels make it easier to talk about <sighs> because it, it gives me moral clarity, right? Like if I already, yeah. if I already like subscribe to this analysis, like I've done my homework on why I think this analysis is correct. Yeah. Right. So applying it, it's like no, 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 no. I'm not being brainwashed by mm-hmm. like soft American liberals. No, no, no. Like this is actually, like this is a rigorous analysis that helps me actually be clear on my position.
0: Mm. I want to feel more like that. I mean, I agree. I don't at all mm-hmm. disagree with that. It just I feel like the heaviness, the emotional heaviness, is like
1: yeah.
0: God. It's just hard. Like it's hard to stomach all of these things that we've that we're. That's naming. true.
1: And I I should own like part of the way that I navigate this work emotionally is like right now I'm in such like doer mode when it comes to organizing that like, I'm not as soft as I often am. Mm. And part of that is because if I feel those things that heavily all the time, I don't know that I can do. Yeah, and that's like an ongoing like parts work thing I'm doing with like my therapist and my close yeah. friends.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I am just always such a tenderoni. So it's just, it hits me. <laughs> that's uh, so
1: cute. Tenderoni. <laughs>
0: tenderoni. Yeah. Um, where do we, and from Tenderoni to back to what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but can I, can I just say like, we need some tenderness around this right now. Like. We do.
0: Yeah. It's not a bad thing. It's, it is that balance of feeling and taking action. Like I don't, I don't want yeah. sitting in my feelings to mm-hmm. um, keep me from taking action and nor do I yeah. want to just take action and not feel my feelings.
1: And we need, we need tenderness with people who are on the wrong side of this right now.
0: Mm. I really
1: think so. Right. Cause like. I can relate to my my distant Jewish cousins right feeling attacked in this moment. I don't agree that they're yeah. being they're being attacked by Hamas, but they're not being attacked like by American progressives. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like I can understand that fear. I acknowledge it, right? And again, I can acknowledge my own positionality and say like I see you. I see that you're scared. I see that you're hurting. Yeah. And we have to lean on what makes us Jews.
0: Yeah. So we've just named a lot of the parallels um between what's happening in the middle east what's happening in the us we've talked about why this topic matters to us personally let's get into some of the places we get tripped up when we are thinking about this issue when we want to get talk about this issue i know for me as i named at the at the outset there's a fear of backlash there's a fear of loss you know i've got friends who strongly support Israel. And, you know, Tamir, you've spoken to the Jewish folks in your life who have generational trauma from anti-Semitism. Um, did you want to speak to that a little bit? Like what you're experiencing with friends and family?
1: Yeah. I mean, my, I'm the only, as far as I know, I'm the only person in my family who I've had communication with, who has this position. I don't think that's true of my family as a whole. Mm. Um, but like nuclear relatives, um, and like relatives in Israel, like I've heard yeah. very limiting, like, you know, we have to condemn Hamas. Like I got a message from a cousin in Israel just saying like, tell your friends in America, we won't stop until we've eliminated every member of Hamas. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And, um, someone else in my family posted that and I'm like, that's Gosh. tough. We're eventually going to have to talk about that. Um, yeah. I am mostly avoiding those conversations with my relatives I am keeping it going with my dad and we can mm. talk about this works. We're going to talk about how to talk to people about this. Yeah. Um, and it's taken a fair amount of craft to be able to have those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the harder part for me is not the fear of loss of those relationships. I think I'm at a point where like, that's not the pressing thing for me. It's the difficulty in seeing the moral inconsistency between mm. what I was brought up to believe and what I understood all Jews to believe on some level and the positions that people are taking that directly contradict that that yeah. moral rubric.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's tough. That's a tough one. <sighs> mm-hmm. I think I feel that in different ways um to different degrees. But yeah, I think I think I referenced that when talking earlier about and not just not just white american jewish folks but various folks who um I don't know. I've seen their moral clarity on other issues. I've seen, you know, mm-hmm. them standing up to oppression and and naming that it's not okay on other issues and um, are failing to do that with this issue or are, have mm-hmm. been, I don't know, influenced by the propaganda. And yep. that's, yeah, that feels very disappointing. I feel like disappointing yep. is is the feeling.
1: <laughs> and we, I think we have to talk again about proximity to whiteness here because mm-hmm. like, if we were to voice a clear condemnation of the occupation of Palestine and the killing of Gazans right now, most of the most vocal resistance is going to come from Ashkenazi Jews. Mm -hmm. I don't know very many Arab Jews, Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi Jews who are on board with what Israel is doing right now, virtually none, in part because they know what it's like to be on the other side of it in a way, even though we know what it's it's like to be on the other side of it, they know it in a double layer, right? They got it from from their home countries and they got it again in Israel yep a ton yeah. of a ton of white supremacy in Israel
0: yeah
1: right? I th- on the one hand I think part of the reason a lot of white people myself included really started getting with the program with racial justice was because of the pain we were causing our friends of color mm. by our lack of understanding and our behavior yeah and with this issue we've allowed the the volume and the intensity of pain and a desire to be empathetic with people we care about sure right? Mm -hmm. But that is inflected by the proximity of Ashkenazi Jews to whiteness,
0: Yeah.
1: right? And like almost borders on an anti-Semitic trope, but the truth of the matter is like lots of oppressed peoples have this like this relationship to whiteness that confers different levels of power and influence.
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, I do do have a fear of loss around losing work, losing professional opportunities, like- Mm -hmm. We've seen that support for Palestine is a top reason that academics get denied tenure. We've seen journalists get fired, politicians can get run out of office. You know, folks' names get put up, names and faces get put up on billboards as as being anti Semitic because they support Palestine, Palestine's Mm -hmm. self determination. Um, I, I'm not stoked about inviting random angry people to respond to our podcast episode. or being called an anti-Semite. Yeah. I just, I just want to name those things as things that I'm feeling and things that I know, you know, a lot of our listeners may be feeling too, as they're wrestling with speaking up or as they are speaking up and receiving that backlash.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think there's different ways we can navigate that, right? Like I'm not asking people to lose their jobs tomorrow without a plan because they want to take the moral high ground, mm-hmm. right? Like everybody has to make their own decisions about what they can risk in any given moment. Yep. And if we are, I was just talking with a friend about this today. They stopped by they're like, they're like, you know, I can't really, there are certain things I can't do because my company has contracts with yep. folks who are directed in this. And it's like, I hear you. And like, let's talk about whether you still want that job. And if not, what's our plan?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. But They said, I can support in other ways.
0: Absolutely. I can support behind the scenes. There's
1: always ways to support. And you have to decide whether that fight is even worth it in your organization. Yeah. And like in academia, there's a particular like silencing apparatus that happens. So that's one that I'm not that familiar. But also one thing, Allison, that you and I know from working with nonprofits is that a lot of transformational change in organizations happens because people in the middle start saying, we can't tolerate this anymore. Yep. This is wrong. And sometimes it means people quitting their jobs if sure. you can do that. Yeah.
0: Another place I know that we can get tripped up is this concept of truth and how do we discern what we believe to be true when there's a ton of propaganda out there. And for me, you know, it's it's made me ask questions of whose perspectives and am I listening to? Who's, histories have i learned about and am i learning about currently mm-hmm. and who who is saying what you know like yeah. yeah you know if if a lot of mainstream media although it is changing if a lot of mainstream media is only sharing the perspective of israel or only reporting on the deaths happening in israel that mm-hmm. that gives me pause right, right. <laughs> that makes me uh think about i need to be getting some information from other places from palestinians from folks who are right. being directly impacted yeah um, And I think that's where, you know, folks tell us that the issue is complicated, right? It's kind of around truth, around history. Mm -hmm. But as you've said before, ethnic cleansing isn't complicated. You know, there's no policy nuance that justifies the mass killing of children. Like there just isn't.
1: That's right. That's right. And like, we do need to have a working understanding of the history and we need to have the ability to discern valid sources from questionable sources. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. especially in this era of disinformation. So we have to ask ourselves some questions, right? Like who has an interest in us believing this thing and mm-hmm. what is that interest?
0: Mm-hmm. How do
1: we know this is true, right? Mm-hmm. Where can we check a number or a video? What are our fact checking sources right now? Yep. And how do we look past like, um, I was going to go on a tangent. I won't. Um, those are all things we, we need to be able to do both around this issue and around any justice issue. Yeah. Right. And so that we can have our own analysis.
0: And I feel that's co- like, that's connected to another area that we get, get tripped up around is like the narratives we see in here about Arab and Muslim countries and yep. as governments, like yeah. we see in here, these tropes that we named earlier is anti-black tropes in the U S but tropes about terrorism that are used to dehumanize opponents and to legitimize political violence. And we see that in the U.S. against Black Lives Matter, against the water protectors. And we see it against activists, that kind of tropes and terrorism um, all over the U.S. and all over the world. Mm -hmm. And these narratives, these kind of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim narratives are also being used to criminalize protesters Um, and they're being used to criminalize protesters In the U.S. as well, who aren't Mm -hmm. Arab or Muslim, like the Stop Cop City protesters are being charged under RICO right now, which is a law used to prosecute organized crime, which is such a ridiculous application of that law.
1: Although I think it's also the law being used against Trump and his cronies in one of their cases, which actually makes more sense because it was literally organized crime. Because it was organized crime. Right.
0: That that makes sense. Yeah.
1: You know, I had the realization yesterday, I was walking my dog, and if you want to know how Jewish I am, my dog's name is Hummus, okay? (laughs) Um... (laughs) so i was walking in hummus last night and i was like fuck i can't go back to israel for a long time because Mm. i will be arrested it is illegal in israel right now to show solidarity with palestinians or to criticize the israeli government's handling of the situation it is criminalized and there are a lot of people right now including many palestinians including children who are being detained administratively without trial
0: yeah
1: right so like This is a common practice. And we have an episode coming up later this season about fascism and racism, racist governments and fascist governments have common tactics. One of them is to criminalize protest and dissent. Yes. Right. So we have to see those connections.
0: And to to perpetuate propaganda too, to create and promulgate and like get propaganda out there. Right. So that's, those are both strategies for sure. Yep. And I think one thing kind of to, to wrap up the things that we get tripped up around, and this is a big one and a hard one, is the lack of obvious solutions. That there isn't a simple, easy solution to this. That, like you said earlier, that having a, a one state solution like could very easily be thrown off track by armed, you know, resistance on any side of this. And right. that it's we can call for a ceasefire. And I absolutely think a ceasefire is what is needed as mm-hmm. a start. And then, then what happens? Right. Then what's our next step?
1: Yeah. How can we ask any people to participate in any sort of peace process when they're being bombed in this way? Yeah. It's impossible. I yeah. can't even get water. Yeah. Right? Um, and also I just want to say like the idea that there are no clear solutions is in the interest of the occupying force. Mm. There were clear solutions. So at one point there was a two-state solution. But now that's impossible because the Israeli government continues to build extremist settlements in the West Bank and got like it's not a viable, like it's not geographically viable. Yeah. Right. We made that happen. We okay. the Israeli government, I'm Israeli, right? So um and so now, if anything, my my personal perspective, established this land. Give it a new name. Make it the world's capital of religious pluralism. Mm. Immediate citizenship for any refugee sponsored by a permanent global fund, right? Mm. In support of that. It's not the world, it's not a perfect model, but you get what I'm saying, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And like, we've seen what happens when ethnostates combine and, and split. There is violence and that's yeah. real. There's also violence now.
0: There's violence now, yeah.
1: And there has been. Yeah.
0: I don't want a lack of obvious solutions to stop any kind of progress, you know, or stop Mm -hmm. me from taking action. Like, and I think that's true with any kind of like racial justice issue. Like I may not, we may not have some perfect utopian solution at the end of the line, but that shouldn't keep us from taking action to move towards more for more people.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. This has been a long podcast episode,
1: Mm -hmm. but
0: We got to get to the juicy part of what can we do? What can we do as white folks in the U.S.? What are we being asked to do? How do we move through all of these challenges within ourselves, outside of ourselves to take action in support of those who need it most at this moment?
1: Yeah. So Palestinian organizers are asking us for a few things. One is to speak out, just say it's wrong, call it what it is, genocide and ethnic cleansing um demand a ceasefire and an end to the israeli military occupation of palestine again how that happens needs to be determined but it needs to be determined take actions to pressure our elected officials to call for that ceasefire make palestinian lives and palestinian safety impossible to ignore and we got to move money um there are palestinian led organizations there are jewish led organizations there are interfaith organizations all organizing right now often at the direction of palestinians Mm-hmm. right? To to stop this carnage. Um, and we need to be supporting those folks. And to the extent that humanitarian relief is now entering and will enter Gaza in the future and the West Bank in the future, we need to be supporting that as well. Yeah. And we can move money to political entities and political action committees that oppose just garbage groups like APAC, mm-hmm. right? Who are in line with like, hardline conservative Republicans on a bunch of nonsense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we can keep talking to the folks in our lives about this issue. And I know that's really hard and you've, you know, we've named how that can be hard and, you know, and you named that obviously many Jewish folks are in a trauma response right now. There are many non-Jewish American folks who've internalized narratives about Israel and Pal- Palestine that really favor Israel over Palestine. Mm-hmm. It can be so hard. And I, I think we got to We got to have some of these conversations. And I love how you shared a, a, earlier about the conversations you are and are not having with your family, mm-hmm. and like that you're being strategic about that, right? Mm-hmm. That you're like, Talking about things over time. And you can see in the future that you're going to need to have some future conversations. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be all at once right Right. now. Like relationships are built over time. They shift over time as well. Yeah.
1: That's right. And like, you don't have to, you don't have to win in one go. You're not going to
0: most people's minds aren't shifted or changed in one go. I know mine isn't like I didn't, I didn't come to the, the thoughts that I have about racial justice, like from one conversation or one learning experience, like it takes, it takes time. And I think we need to continue to be in those conversations and some of those happen in our workplaces, or maybe they don't happen in our workplaces and we wish mm-hmm. they did. Um, yeah. We're going to talk a little more about that in an upcoming episode um, kind of navigating. Yeah racial justice in the
1: workplace. Yep. Hmm. Shall we talk about where to go to learn more?
0: Yeah. There's so many
1: places. (laughs) There are a lot of places. I'm going to name a few right now, and we'll share these and more on social media. Um, So Jewish Voice for Peace, If Not Now, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, We Are Not Numbers, there are a ton of Palestinian journalists on social media, and we'll share some of their posts so you can find them. Sadly, many Palestinian journalists have been killed in this conflict alongside huge numbers of their relatives. Um, yeah. There are many, many more resources. We'll share some of them and then encourage you to like, just keep finding and vetting them. Right.
0: I would say folks could move money to any of these resources, to a lot of these different right. resources, potentially, and to folks who are, like you said, working on the ground, who are yeah, um addressing this issue in the ways that it can be addressed.
1: Yeah. I think just in terms of raw, raw um footage, if you will, this is our longest episode ever, <laughs> which is probably apropos.
0: I think it's apropos. This is like such a huge, a huge and and hard issue, but not, not overly complex. I think. Yeah. Yeah. We've broken, broken it down and I hope folks are coming away feeling a little less static, a little clearer in their moral clarity around this issue and Mm -hmm. feeling like you can take some action. Yeah. Thank you so much, friend. Thank you, friend.